It's, it's rare that I get up on stage and I have to raise the stand. <laughs> Usually I'm going the other way. Good morning. Uh, you know, Larry and I exchanged emails a few months back, and those emails were uh, concerning an invitation to come and, and uh, deliver the message here at your church. And uh, when we were setting dates, I didn't re we set the date of April 16th. But I didn't realize that April 16th was Easter Sunday. And he didn't either. Until about uh, maybe a month ago or so, Kathy and I, my wife, uh, was, uh, was asking about when we were coming to preach here at Grace Redeemer, and I gave her the date. She said, yeah, it's Easter Sunday. Like, oh. So, but you know, let me just say this. I am, it is just such a joy to be here with you this morning. And uh, thank you for the kind invitation to be here. Uh, my wife, Kathy, is here. My daughter, Alyssa, is with us this morning as well. And so it's just a real treat to be here with you this morning. And um, the Lord Christ has risen, right? He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. You know, and as we think about the resurrection event, it is likely one of the most remarkable events in all of history in all of humankind. In fact, just yesterday I was going through some news on my iPad and I found a Fox News online opinion letter written and the title was, Why the Resurrection is the Most Important Truth in the World. Imagine that. And so, how important is this truth? How important is this truth to our faith, our Christian faith? And so today we're going to go through something that I have termed the resurrection triad, and I'm not sure um, if it really all makes, uh, comes together the way I would like it to, but here we go, okay? And, um, but the Christian faith is, is strongly dependent upon the resurrection. And we have Bill Bright, who was, of course, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, and here's what he said. He said, the validity of Jesus' claims about himself rests on the resurrection, that is, whether he rose from the dead or stayed in the grave. On my spiritual journey from agnosticism to faith in Christ, I, like many people, had a problem with the resurrection. So here's Bill Bright, a man who started Campus Crusade for Christ. Through his ministry, thousands of young college men and women have come to know the Lord, not just here in the U.S., but now it's overseas. You know, it's international. But yet, here's this man saying that I really struggled to come to accept Christ as my Savior, mostly because of the resurrection. He doubted the resurrection. Yet he points out how important it is. Also, another gentleman you guys might be familiar with is Chip Ingram. Chip is a well-known pastor and speaker. And here's what he says. Both believers and non-believers agree that if, if Jesus rose from the dead, then, he, then we have an intellectually feasible argument that the claims of Christianity are true. If he didn't, then all of Christianity falls. Very powerful statement, isn't it? It was the summer of 1992, and I found myself in a small group of 12 people. In that group of 12 seven were non-believers. I was one of those non-believers. My wife, Kathy, was a non-believer in that group. 
And during that summer, I really struggled with faith in Christ because I had to have this intellectual, feasible argument. This I, need to, I needed to be able to put it together somehow where it made some logical sense for me. And I struggled with that over that summer. And I'll share more about that later. And then, of course, we have the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is futile and your faith is empty. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless, you are still in your sins. Note the theological implication of what Paul is saying here. The end result of sin is death, eternal separation from God. Yet what he's saying here is that if Christ himself was not able to raise from the dead, if he remained dead, then where is our hope? We have no hope. And so is, is the truth of the resurrection important? Of course it is. It is paramount to our walk as believers. But how do we know that it is true? How do we know? And what would we say to someone, maybe like Bill Bright, someone who is struggling, would, would, would not want to know more about the Christian faith, but that person perhaps is asking questions about the resurrection. What would, our, what would we say to that person? How would we defend the resurrection? Because you know that there, there's, there, there are no accounts of anyone seeing Christ actually being raised from the dead. Right? So how would we defend the resurrection? And so today we're going to be talking about defending the Christian hope through three, these three areas, the death of Christ, the empty tomb, and the appearances of Christ. And if we were to look at the death of Christ, the first thing we need to know is that, uh, that Jesus was actually crucified. And we have this account here in John, and if we were to uh, read this, you would see that there are a number of details here that John includes in his gospel, which lend to the veracity of what he was saying. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross, a detail there. He went out to the place of, of the skull, another detail, which is in Aramaic called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, another detail, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. We also have other passages, biblical texts, that are found in the other Gospels that, that speak clearly about the, the, the crucifixion of Christ. So we have good biblical support for his crucifixion. We also have a painting like this back in 1869. And uh, I, I like to throw in paintings every now and then in my messages just to break it up a little bit. So, but here you'll see this painting from 1869, and um, it depicts what might be Golgotha. It depicts the, the two men back there in the corner, back towards the back, that were crucified with Jesus. It depicts the uh, Jesus on the cross and the cross being raised, the masses of people. But also what I want you to note is that it, the, the artist also depicts a few people here on the right, kind of off to the side, up away from the crucifixion event. And, and uh, the artist may very well be depicting the disciples, the followers of Christ, that once 
they knew he was, this was going to be his end, they departed from him, right? They fled. And then this one person, he, this is here, it very well may be Joseph of, of Arimathea. Okay? And you see him there with his varied colored robe and carrying some items. And you see him walking towards the cross in preparation to, to take his body off of the, off the cross. And concerning the death of Christ, we also have non-biblical texts or non-Christian texts to consider. There is Jewish writing in the Talmud that confirms the crucifixion. There's also the Gospel of Thomas, which we don't accept as a Gnostic gospel, but still they, in that gospel you would see some reference to the crucifixion. You also have Tacitus, a first century Roman historian who died right around 114 AD. Now why would a Roman historian write about the crucifixion if it was not true? Wouldn't make any sense to do that. But Tacitus did so. Also, we have Gerd Ludemann. Gerd Ludemann <laughs> is, a, uh, is a more modern um, New Testament scholar, German scholar. And uh, Pastor Anderson's over there smiling. He, he knows who he is. And, uh, but this gentleman does not believe in the resurrection, does not accept the resurrection event as historical. But here's what he does say about the crucifixion event. He says, the fact of the death of Jesus as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Despite hypotheses of a pseudo-death, and we don't have time to get into all of those, but trust me, there are plenty of them out there, or a deception, in other words, maybe the disciples carried his, uh, took his, uh, his body away somewhere else, um, which are sometimes put forth it need not be discussed further here. Is crucifixion important as part of the triad for the resurrection? Of course it is. Because if we don't have his death, we can't have a resurrection, right? So the, the death is a fairly well-documented and approved item. The empty tomb, Jesus is buried. Joseph of Arimathea, I just mentioned him a few moments ago. In these passages in the Gospels, we have um, fairly consistent and accurate representations concerning of who Joseph of Marathia was. And in fact, in Luke, added to the three that I have up there, in Luke, here's what it says. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, meaning he was an important man, member of the Sanhedrin council, a good and upright man who had, who had not consented to their decision and action to crucify Jesus. He came from, from, the, uh, from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was waiting for that very thing that Jesus was preaching. The very message that Jesus was proclaiming, Joseph of Arimathea was waiting for that. Going to Pilate, he asks for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. Again, we have another account of, with great details, but also supported by the other Gospels. This is a, um, a painting by Giovanni Savaldo of 1525. Okay. I just, it just impressed me, just if you just reflect on it, look at it for a moment. Now, I'm not saying this is exactly the way it happened, right? But it gives us an image to look at. The backdrop is fairly benign. 
but the focus is on Jesus, his body. You see the, you see the wounds. You see uh, Joseph of Arimathea uh, holding, uh, embracing, supporting his body with his right arm. You see him holding his left hand by the wrist there and, and just kind of gently caring for Jesus. And, and of course, you see Joseph of Arimathea with that very colored robe a man who was of great wealth and importance and, and recognized. Okay? And so this is just a, a, an image that helps us to think through, uh, reflect on this event. A Joseph taking the body off the cross, bringing him into a tomb, and having him buried. It's an important fact. What about the women? The women at the tomb. We have Mary Magdalene and others, and and. All the, all the Gospels cite women appearing at the tomb. And, and, some, and the, some would argue, well, the Gospels have slightly different variations concerning the appearance of the women at the tomb. But others would say, well, if, it was, if they all had it laid out exactly correct, exactly alike, then the argument would be what? It copied, yeah. It was, it's too perfect. They just copied it. They made it up. But here's another point to consider. Joseph, Josephus, was a first century Jewish historian. Okay. And he said this, from women let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and the temerity of their sex. Okay. Temerity meaning audacity, the boldness of their, of their female gender. Why would anyone want to accept any testimony from such a being? So let me ask you this. If you're writing the New Testament Gospels and you want to assert a truth concerning the tomb, would you dare to include women as your key witnesses to that? Probably not. Not in this time anyway. Now, I don't, this is not, I'm not saying that Jesus, of course, did not value women, and he had them as part of his life throughout. And the New Testament, of course, supports women in a number of different ways. But what I'm saying here is that the gospel writers were including women as witnesses, and they were serving as testimony to the empty tomb. Here's another image. This is... a. Uh, Dominican monk from fifth, uh, 1440, okay? And this likely captures the Matthean account of the women at the tomb and that one angel telling them is, everything is okay. I see the women distraught, their faces down, and, and uh, one looking into the, into the tomb there, and the angel pointing up, saying, it's going to be okay, it is okay, everything's fine. And, and I think what's kind of a little, little comical, actually, is that this, this figure here, does anyone know who that might be? That's the monk who wrote, who painted the painting. <laughs> he thought, you know what, I better include myself in there. So, so for, I, I just thought it was kind of, kind of funny, right? So, all right, so he's there with his head bowed, remembering the scene himself. Okay. The empty tomb without decay. This is another important factor to consider. 
the, the, uh, we have Luke, who writes the book of Acts, of course. And Luke here is, is citing the Apostle Paul. Now, remember that Paul, of course, was a man who set his life to persecute the Christian church, the way. He set out to um, do away with what was happening in Christianity. And he called himself the Hebrew of Hebrews. Yet, after his conversion, he would say something like this. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. And he's quoting now Psalm 16.10, I believe it is. You will not let your Holy One see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. So, so Paul here ha- gives us some biblical and even theological and historical. There's a lot of stuff going on here. Biblical, theological, and historical basis for us to believe that Jesus' body was resurrected. It never experienced decay in comparison to David's body. What about early oral tradition recorded Um, If you have your Bibles, I would ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. It says there, and again, this is Paul writing, the, the Apostle Paul, the one that we just mentioned. He says, For what I received... And what he's referring to there is this early oral tradition. He received oral tradition. What I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. I pass on to you written in written form now. I'm going to write it down now. And it's of first importance, meaning it is of utmost importance. It is of paramount significance that we have this oral tradition now written down. And here's where the oral tradition actually starts. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter. And then then to the twelve. And that's likely where you have this oral tradition coming down from the believers, early church. And now Paul's recording this in 1 Corinthians. We have Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised, and Jesus appeared. What's also interesting is that the verb, therefore, was raised is in a perfect passive tense, which means that God is the one, this is like a divine passive. Jesus did not raise himself. God raised him up. And also it's perfect in the sense that it's an event that occurred at one point in time, but its results and its significance continues on and on. And the resurrection event is not only an event that occurred, but its results that ought to include the transformation of life continues on. Verse 6, 
After that, now this part is likely Paul writing. The scholars seem to think that from this point forward, it's not part of the oral tradition itself. It's part of what Paul included here. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the, at the same time, most of whom are still living. In other words, hey, guys, you don't believe me. Go check it out. Go ask them. Some of them are still alive. They can verify what I'm telling you. Although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And that phrase is a little bit of an awkward phrase, but what Paul is referring to there by abnormally born is that uh, who is he, a man who had persecuted the church, had been against Christianity, and now all of a sudden he's an apostle? Right? Ah, let's go back to Ludeman again. Interesting, isn't it, that Ludeman dates this oral tradition likely within two years of the crucifixion. That's pretty phenomenal. That's really an early tradition. And then what about this, uh, this gentleman? Pinchas Lapid is a uh, Jewish scholar. Jewish scholar. Um, who does not believe in, in Christ as the Messiah. But he does say that these, this oral tradition is, it can be likened to an eyewitness. Right? Pretty remarkable, right? All right, what about the appearance? So we've talked about the, the death of Christ as part of the triad. We've talked about the uh, empty tomb. And now we're going to talk for a few moments here about the appearances. And, and I believe that these three elements kind of come together. And if you bring them together, there's, there can be no doubt about who Jesus Christ was as a resurrected, um, as a resurrected Savior. Prior appearances, and uh, even in, in Mark, 1450, for instance, we have, uh, we have it there. Then everyone deserted him and fled. And this is after his arrest. So we, and going back again to that painting we saw a moment ago, we have people off to the side, those that had deserted him, had not decided not to continue to follow him. But following his appearances, we have in Acts a number of illustrations of people beginning to choose differently and begin to uh, reverse their abandonment. We have this in Acts chapter 12, which, which shows the first apostle martyred, James, the brother of John, being martyred because of his faith. And we have others here that show that they were willing to give up their lives. We have extra-biblical confirmations from Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch. These are two first century um, leaders of the church who, who wrote about how the, 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 this early Christian church, although they had seemingly abandoned Christ after, after his death, all of a sudden were, were following him, were doing these remarkable things in the name of Christ. In the name of Christ. And these two men were martyred themselves. Ignatius of Antioch actually was martyred on his, on his way to Rome from Antioch. This is a uh, Rembrandt sketching um, around six, 1656 or so. 
and uh, where he, he, he drew this sketch to try to depict the Jesus appearing before his disciples. It's hard to see, but there, well, we'll go on. What about James, the brother of, of Jesus? We, if we were to look at Mark and John, we would find that uh, his family really did not uh, fully understand what was going on in Jesus' life, right? And in fact, uh, it says that they sort of ignored him, didn't want to be part of what he was doing. But yet, later on in, in Galatians, we see that Paul calls him an apostle. Right? And we also see in Acts that James speaks before the council in Jerusalem. And he speaks on behalf of the Christian church, advocating what the Christian church stood for. And what about Reginald Fuller, an, an Anglican scholar, priest, who has written quite extensively on New Testament Christology. Here's what he says. If there was no account of his appearance to James, one would need to be invented to explain his life transformation. Right? How else could you explain James turning about so dramatically and living a totally transformed and different life apart from Jesus actually appearing before him? The risk of relating to mess prior messianic figures. I, I have this in here because, and we don't have time to get into it all, but there were a number of other men during the time of Jesus that claimed to be the Messiah. But all of them ended up dead. Right? So if I was writing the Gospels and wanted to assert the truth of Jesus and his resurrection, I'd be very cautious about calling him a Messiah when everyone around the, around the time had experienced Messiahs that had all died and none had, had been raised from the dead. But yet they do that. And why, why might they do that? The truth of the matter that they're trying to assert. There are group appearances in Luke, also in John. And of course, we just saw 1 Corinthians 15.5. Going back to Pinchas Lapid again, here's what he says. If the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious movement of faith, Something must have happened which we can designate as a historical event since its results were historical. It's a great statement. Even from a Jewish scholar who still does not accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah. All right, so the resurrection tribe, we've gone through a number of things. There's no denying his death. The... Um, he was placed in an empty tomb by a historical figure. Women were used as testimony by the gospel writers. Though David, though, though like David, he died, unlike David, he did not decay. The oral tradition we just saw a moment ago, the reversal of abandonment, why use messianic ter terminology when others ended in death, and then the group appearances. But also, what I also wanted to share with you is that that because of the resurrection, we ought to also not just intellectually know that he was resurrected, 
but that we ought to personally know the living Christ, which leads to lives lived transformed. We saw lives lived transformed by the apostles and the disciples and many others that followed Jesus Christ after his resurrection. Bill Bright, a man who was agnostic, all of a sudden he got over that hurdle about the resurrection, came to faith in Christ, and his life was radically transformed. And through him, many others were transformed. In the summer of 1992, I sat by a bridge in Sarasota, my parked car with my Bible opened. Of the 12 in the, in the group, I was the last one. I was holding out. I wanted to make sure that what I believed was true. And I took that step of faith. Kathy was the first one in the group. I was the last. I was holding out. I needed to have all the evidence lined up just right. But I realized that it wasn't all the evidence. It was faith. I needed to have faith in Christ and in the truth of his resurrection. After that, we started a church in Sarasota. After that, we moved to Dallas. Prior to that, I will be honest with you, I give the Lord Jesus credit for my marriage. Apart from him transforming me, I would not be married to Kathy today, likely. He saved my marriage. He transformed me. Lives lived transformed occur when we get to know a resurrected Jesus Christ personally. And so we can begin to close by thinking about this. We can know him resurrected as part of an intellectually feasible argument, as Chip Ingram stated. But we must, we must personally know him resurrected to transform us. And so as we celebrate this, the resurrection day, the Easter Sunday, what is it that the Lord Jesus has done in your life to transform you because of his resurrection? Where is it that he might still want you to be transformed? How else might he be asking you to change? And maybe where there are some guests here today that, that do not know the resurrected Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5 again. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. These verses clearly lay it out. He died for our sins, was buried, was raised, was and appeared. So I ask you, consider the resurrected Jesus today. Those who are believers, how is, he, how is it that his resurrection is calling you to be transformed further? Those that may not know Christ personally, consider the truth of the resurrection. And then ask, how may Jesus begin to transform my life? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your goodness, 
your love for us, your patience with us, Lord. And we come before you as a body uh, that desires to honor you, glorify you, worship you on this Easter Sunday. But most of all, Lord, we, we surrender into your hands and we offer ourselves that you may freely, under your authority and through your power and by your spirit, work in our lives, transform us, Lord, that, may, that we ourselves may serve as viable witnesses to your goodness and to the resurrected Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.